Now, the football season may be on hold, but The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there. And in these very strange and uncertain times, they're still hard at work telling unique, engaging and informative stories. The Athletic can keep you connected to the team and the sport you love. Sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see for yourself. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod for a 90-day free trial. Hundreds of thousands hold their breath on Merseyside. It's Xabi Alonso for 3-3, three, three, it's saved! And Alonso follows it in! It's wonderful! It's marvellous! It's 3-3 three, three in the European Cup final! This is the Red Agenda on The Athletic, and of course, uh, Liverpool's history is steeped with great managers. Uh, but do they all get the recognition they deserve? Today, we're going to look at the transition from one of the bootroom greats, Roy Evans, to Liverpool's first foreign manager in Gerard Houllier, and how he took the Reds into a new millennium with a different approach. Of course, he gave Steven Gerrard his debut. He built a team that won the treble and can lay claim to many of the players that went on to win the Champions League in 2005. But what credit does he get? Let's talk with uh, Simon Hughes and James Pearce. We'll start with yourself, James. Um, how much credit does Gerard Houllier get? Yeah, I think Gerard Houllier's reign as Liverpool manager is a is a real fascinating one to to try and make sense of. I think the where he deserves huge credit is that I think he was the man that modernised Liverpool Football Club and kind of dragged it kicking and screaming into the twenty first century. And I think that there'll always be a debt of, debt of gratitude for him for that. I think you know you mentioned the treble there. You know, that was a, an unbelievable season, and you know, but for Istanbul coming so soon after, I think you know that Alaves UEFA Cup final would get talked about a lot more than it was. I think the disappointing thing for me when I think about the Houllier reign is almost what might have been because you know you think back to 2001 and you thought, right, this is a team and a manager well capable of of kicking on and and finally delivering that Premier League title and. You know, I think there was you know a number of factors that contributed to that not happening. I think poor recruitment, and also you know Gerard Houllier's own own health as well, because I don't think he was ever the the same manager after he had that life saving heart surgery. Think how difficult it must have been, Simon, in making that transition from managers who had always been involved with the boot room or as a player, so whether it be Roy Evans, Graham Souness. Kenny Dalglish, a long line of people who had a certain connection to the club. And then they went in a completely different direction. I mean, that was a rather big gamble at the time. Yeah, well, it was a, a historical moment in, in Liverpool's sort of modern history. I mean, obviously, we, I think we've spoken about Graham Souness on a previous show, about how he had tried to implement a lot of the things that Julia eventually did implement earlier on in the decade, but went about it, you know, completely the wrong way. You know, it, it does get forgotten, I think, just how much turmoil I think Liverpool were, were in when he became sole manager because it's, he, he did, of course, join the club as a joint manager with Roy Evans, which was obviously a bit of a fudge and, and, and unravelled very quickly within a period of four months. Um, and it was only really then that he, he was obviously able to sort of have the big influence that, that he did have. I mean, there's no doubt that, I mean, he obviously took probably about 12 to 18 months to really get a grip of what was going on at Liverpool. But I'd, I'd say for, for 18 months to two years, you know, that, that team that he built was a, a formidable team. And it, it sort of, it, it was a departure for, from from what had gone before at Liverpool because the team under Roy Evans was seen as very much as a, a sort of a flair team with attacking players who they turned Liverpool into a ser- what I'd say is a serious team, um, built on a strong defence um, not a great deal of width um, experience in the right places, but I think crucially, you know, a lot of gifted uh, players up front, which who scored a lot of goals for Liverpool at the time. I mean, I, th- I, I, I might be corrected on this, but I think when um, in one of the seasons Liverpool scored more goals than than, um, than than any other season in the club's history, despite the the perception um, that that he was a defensively minded manager. Yeah, so Liverpool scored a lot of goals under Julier, particularly in that 2001 season. You know, I'd have to double check, but I think they, they, they did go close to, if not setting, you know, a, a Liverpool record for the number of goals he scored in that season. Of course, he played 
a huge number of games because of the way they pursued all the cup competitions. But, you know, it just reflects, I guess, that they did have a lot of ability up front. Um, you know, at times, they, 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 they were, they, I wouldn't say they were exciting teams to watch, but they, they were a team that produced exciting football matches, particularly, you know, it, was, it almost felt like all the things that sort of Julia had um, sort of taught the team and the players sort of went out the window in the big matches in some ways, you know, the big finals, there was always a lot of drama, you know, I think that sort of kept people engaged with them. Um, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into a bit more like sort of what Liverpool were facing when he came in. Um, but, you know, I, I, I sort of, I guess I do agree with James. I think managers tend to be remembered for how they finish rather than how they start. But, you know, I know, I know obviously a lot of the, the first team players like Michael Owen, Steven Gerrard, Jamie Carragher, absolutely love Gerrard Julio for what, for what he did for their careers. Well, it's interesting you mentioned those guys. So, James, if, it, if we look at the long list of talent that he brought through, was Gerard Houllier lucky to have these players or did he create something out of them above and beyond their expectations? Uh, a bit of both. I think he, he was certainly fortunate to, to walk in at a time when, you know, let's, let's make no bones about it. Steven Gerrard is a you know, once-in-a-lifetime footballer. So any any manager would feel absolutely blessed to to think that their their reign as manager coincides with someone like that coming through and uh, and the same goes with with Michael Owen and I think I think with Jamie Carragher I think it was interesting because I think you know, obviously I think with Owen and Gerrard two immensely kind of naturally gifted footballers where you know probably with with Jamie Carragher he he would be the first to admit that he was someone who you know his unbelievable attitude and professionalism ultimately made him the best centre back in Europe, which he was in those early days of of Benitez's reign, in in my opinion. But and I think he's he's probably the one of the three mentioned there that probably has got the the biggest debt to Julio because I think um, you know he 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 changed a lot a lot of the way in which he went about living his life, his diet, his lifestyle. Um, and, and really got an education, I think, from Houllier. Um And so I think he'd probably be the one, I think probably, you know, I get the sense that he probably benefited from working with Houllier more than more than, uh, than, than than the other two, maybe. I mean, if we look at some players and the, and the changes that were made, so say, for example, you went from a Brad Friedel to a Jerzy Dudek or maybe in defence, a Bjornby to a John Arnorisa, uh, a Phil Babb to a, to a Sammy Hippier. Um he did make significant additions as well, Simon. Yeah, Gerald Hulay, the first year, was, was sort of facing big challenges over players' fitness, which, which in some ways did contribute towards, I think, Steven Gerrard getting a chance sooner than he may have done otherwise. Because I remember uh, there was, that, that's where the, the, the relationship between Hulay and Steve Highway soured a little bit because... It, you mentioned Gerard there. It was who they sort of advertised it that he'd been he'd plucked Gerard from the academy, where nobody appeared to have noticed this player's supreme ability. When he'd been invited down to the academy to to go and watch Stephen Wright, and the way who they spoke about that story, I think it, it certainly rubbed up people, you know, badly at the academy and set that relationship between Highway and himself up. You know, on a, on a negative in a negative way from early on, but who they did you know go out and, and spend a lot of money on on players. You know, the first sort of ninety nine two thousand period. I mean, they signed Sammy Hippier from Villam Tway, which you've got to say is probably who best signing. I would argue, given you know the, his longevity and the number of trophies that he he won. I mean, Sammy Hippier, I think, would be up there in in certainly the top five. Liverpool great defenders. I don't think it's too extreme to say that he was a brilliant player for Liverpool. You know, he signed Vladimir Smitsa, who again sort of flattered to, to deceive at times. But I don't think he could describe him as a bad sign. And I don't think any player who who scores a goal as significant as you know the as the one that he did in the Champions League final, albeit under Rafa Benitez, as, as a bad sign. And uh, Titi Kamara, you know, a player who had sort of one season where he actually did really well for Liverpool. Stefan Honcho. Uh, Sander Westerveld, Eric Meyer, Didi Haman, and Emil Heskey, they all came within sort of 12 to 15 months of Julier's arrival. So all those players, really, bar, bar one or two, you know, you would say were good signings, really, players who contributed towards uh, a lot of success. 
the, who they delivered the following, you know, the season after that. Um, so by and large, I think early, you know, early on, a lot of his transfer record was was pretty good. Uh, but then later on, post illness, I think you could argue then that is is um, maybe his judgment wasn't so right. Uh, I mean, LRG Youth is the one that, that sort of stands out there. From that point onwards, it's sort of a slow. Uh, procession towards his departure. Yeah, perhaps one of the key signings as well was off the field in terms of um, the ex-club skipper, Phil Thompson. And and really important to still have those roots within the football club. So Phil was there and Sammy Lee for a certain portion of time, James. And they, they proved very able lieutenants for him. They did, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think I think the bringing Phil Thompson back as... As, as as number two was a was a very shrewd move by by Julier and um, although it was a break from the boot room tradition um, with 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 the with the Frenchman coming in, I think you know there, there was still that that link with the with the club's past, which I think I think you know means a lot to the to the fans, and I think it showed as well that Julier got the club and um, you know and, and the fact he was he was in, embracing the importance of having. Having those links and um, yeah, I mean it was you know those first few years were you, know, you could it was a, you know, a, a kind of a gradual a gradual overhaul wasn't it? He was putting in place. I think as Simon said, the you know the ones that jump out at you were probably you know the Hippier and Hencho bringing those bringing those two in really did improve Liverpool defensively because I think that had been a you know a major a major weakness up up to that point and you know Didi Hamam another. You know, really, really shrewd signing. I think what was it fourth in um, 99-2000 improvement on seventh in his in his in his first season. So you know, it was a gradual and a gradual process. And then you know, the summer of 2000. You know, he, he, although Julier did spend money, you know, he, he he did he was also you know did tap into the the free transfers as well. You know, Gary McAllister up there with 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 anyone that he signed in terms of a player coming in and having an impact on a team. And I think you have to give him a lot of credit for that one because, you know, I, I can remember when Liverpool signed Gary McAllister thinking why on earth would, would Liverpool sign someone like that in, you know, well, well into the twilight of his career. And, you know, he was, he was absolutely immense in the, in the back end of that, that 2000, 2001 season, which, you know, des- rightly deserves to be ranked up there with the, the best seasons that Liverpool have ever had. Well, yeah, an absolute genius of a signing, Simon. And actually, if you if you look through Liverpool's history books, possibly a unique sort of signing in terms of the age he was and the influence that Gary McAllister had for that team. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, he, he delivered, you know, a lot of big moments for Liverpool. I mean, you think about the end of that 2000-2001 season where he scores the free kick against Everton uh, at Goodison Park and... That was a really big moment in, in Julio's time at Liverpool because I think, if I remember correctly, Liverpool had lost at home to Leeds in the uh, in the Premier League that, on the Friday and then obviously played Everton a couple of days later over the Easter bank holiday weekend. And had, the, had that game ended up as a draw, you know, would Liverpool have the confidence to go the extra mile in, in those tight games towards the end of the season? I'm not so sure. Um, and you know, obviously, I mean, the nature of the goal was just incredible. And then, you know, McAllister also scores against Barcelona. The penalty, you know, just so composed against, you know, a, a great Barcelona team. So, I mean, I, th- I think it's quite interesting. James just mentioned something about Julio there about like sort of his, um, you know, his relationship with Liverpool and how you know he, he sort of kept in touch with with sort of the club's traditions by bringing in somebody like Phil Thompson. But it gets forgotten, of course, that Julio had actually lived in Liverpool before in the 1970s when he was studying to become a teacher and he taught at Allsop uh, Comprehensive, which is just next to the flyover now on Queen's Drive. It's probably a couple of miles away from the from Anfield. And I remember going to meet Julien in Paris um, a few years ago and we met at a hotel in, in, called the Hotel Normandy and it was, it was very, very French. And who uh, they told me in great detail about that period, about how he'd he'd come to um, he'd come to England to, to study and, and do a thesis. And he remember he told me that the, the title of thesis was "Growing Up in a Deprived Area." So you know he knew about Liverpool and he understood sort of the qualities of the the people and what they wanted to see 
Um, you know, he played. I mean, he actually he claims that he played Zingari League football. I don't know how true that was, but he he arrived at Liverpool with with a much sort of higher profile than say somebody like Arsene Wenger did when he went to to uh, to Arsenal. I mean, Wenger had achieved success with Monaco, but then had taken a bit of a sideward step, or you know, back, some would say backward step to to go and manage in Japan, whereas Julio had had you know ten ten years at least of of top level football by the time he came to Liverpool by, you know, managing Paris Saint-Germain. They, I think they won the first league title when, uh, in, that, in that club's history when, when Julio went there. He's obviously managed the French national team. Lots of controversy around that, that, that reign. And he'd managed some of the top players, young players in France in the, in the years leading up to his arrival at Liverpool. And I, I remember speaking to Rick Parry and he said, you know, that, that, that Julio was viewed as sort of the, the perfect person, really, you know, to, to to marry, I guess, Liverpool's history with what they wanted to do in in the future. And he he was actually on the verge of of going to manage uh, Sheffield Wednesday when the call came from Liverpool. Uh, Ron Atkinson had left Sheffield Wednesday, and and Liverpool managed to intercept that move. He'd also spoken to Celtic about replacing uh, Vim Janssen. So it's um, quite an interesting sort of backstory, really. And I think he. You know, I remember James was quite rudely described him as the Frenchman there, uh, a bit like uh, the way the way Ian St John used to, and mm. some of the other ex players who didn't like him. But he obviously had some connection with Liverpool. I think, you know, that a lot of the sort of the animosity towards him from the ex players stems from the way he handled the situation as as it worsened in the, the latter years. But you know, let's not forget that in those early years he was. Um, he was a formidable character, really. Who, who I remember Jamie Carragher talking at length about how, at the start of every season, he'd map out the, the campaign and he'd have you know overhead projectors, all sorts of new technology, explaining to the players you know exactly how he saw the season mapping out. It was almost like he could see into the future, and that really, really inspired people like like Jamie Carragher. And it's no surprise really that who they managed to get the best out of him. It's interesting that relationship you mentioned there, maybe with the the former players in Sir John Allen Kennedy, because. I always got the feeling going to a Gerard Houllier press conference that it was a siege mentality and that for Gerard Houllier, it was him and his team and then the walls were up and essentially, you know, they just wanted to get on with it without anyone else sort of interfering. But I used to work with Ian St. John on the radio covering the games at, at the time and Gerard Houllier used to take notice, Simon, of what was being said in the press, whether it was myself and Saint, whether it was Alan Kennedy, who was broadcasting at the time. And it seemed like he couldn't just ignore all that stuff that was going on. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, he he became very paranoid. And I think that that stayed with him to this day. I mean, I think I, I interviewed him in 2015 and... You know, he's obviously left Liverpool 11 years before and it was still something he spoke about then. You know, it seemed like he, you know, sort of... He was happy to sort of use the club's history when it suited him, but then use it as a reason, an excuse for failure almost when when things didn't go right. And uh, another journalist actually told me a story about how um, he used to go in to do Gerard Houllier's programme notes and um, Houllier would wait... You know, wait for him with a, a list of all the ex players who worked within the media who um, who were lining up at that time to have a pop at him. And I think it, it just sort of became it was a self fulfilling prophecy in many ways. It, the more he spoke about it, the worse it almost became. And a lot of people actually just wanted him to do well. And you know, some of the con- the criticism that he had was 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 constructive, but it actually probably led to him getting more and more wound up and. And actually took his eye off the ball, you know, for you know for, for a period of time towards the end. And as I said earlier, it was a long separation when when he did leave Liverpool. He probably should have left 12, 18 months before. And I think privately he did he just asked himself that question: Should have I just left when after my heart, you know, the, the heart problem that he had? Because it was a profound moment in his life. I, I wonder if he had his opportunity again. Then, you know, would would he have carried on for as long as he did? Uh, I suspect probably he'd arrived at a different decision. In 1999, Gerard Houllier James said it would take five years to overhaul the football club. Well, it, he seemed to do it in ultra-quick time because obviously two years later, they'd won this unprecedented treble. Or actually more than a treble. If you talk to Gerard Houllier or Phil Thompson, they'll say it was more than three trophies within the year. But but a remarkable achievement <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah, huge. And that, you know, that was, as a Liverpool fan, I think 
it doesn't really get much better, does it? Than that 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 back end of that season from from beating Birmingham on on penalties in the League Cup final, it it just generated this this amazing momentum. Um, and and just I think also the manner in which each of the trophies was won because. You know, fans were put through the ringer on on all three, weren't they? With you know the the FA Cup final against Arsenal, Liverpool had absolutely no right to win that game. Um, outplayed, hung in there, and then you know Michael Owen pops up with with two unbelievable solo finishes in the latter stages to turn that on its head. And then I was in Dortmund for the, uh, the UEFA Cup final against Alaves in in two thousand and one, and you know what a game, what a game that was. Um, you know, settled by Gary Gary McAllister's free kick going in and off their defender in you know golden goal in in extra time and you know that was that was an unbelievable occasion and it is as Simon said earlier on it is slightly ironic that you know Liverpool won trophies in that manner under Julier when you know one of the big criticisms and I think rightly so towards the end of his reign was that that sometimes the football was pretty uninspiring and it, it could be quite negative you know I, I think about when Liverpool didn't kick on from from that season, um, you know, you think back to you know when they finished second to Arsenal in two thousand and two, and you, you that 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 felt like you know a real kind of a real platform to to kick on, and then you know what what happened the following season on on the back of the money that was squandered in the transfer market, it was pretty much downhill from there on there on in for Julier, and I think um, you know I think but for winning the League Cup. When they beat Manchester United in two thousand and three, I think we probably would have seen his exit before he uh, he did finally go. Five major pieces of silverware across his five full seasons in charge, but ultimately, what eluded him, Simon, was the Premiership, the the thing that he knew all the fans <laughs> craved. And I wonder how much that hurt to Gerard Julio when you were sat down having that conversation <laughs> with him. I, w- I would imagine he's the sort of person that that still niggles at him. It does, yeah. It does. I definitely sense that. Yeah, I mean, he didn't help himself, I think, at the time, you know, coming out with the statements about, was it 10, 10 games from greatness, you know, the, which he yeah. was probably right. You know, he's probably right that Liverpool were 10 games from greatness. They were competing in the Champions League, doing really well, you know, obviously competing for the league title, possibilities there. If Liverpool had won, never mind, well, both, if they'd won one of those competitions at the time, you know, it, it, it would, uh, all those players, I think, who represented Liverpool in that period would go down as great. You know, there's, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, I think that when you think back about that that Leverkusen game uh, away, that was a seminal moment in his in his reign, really, because he, made, he did make some unusual decisions in that game. I mean, it, only a few months earlier, he'd returned as Liverpool's manager ahead of the Roma game, you know, having... Being in hospital, you know, and, and and being in recuperation for a number of months, and you only need to, to to if you look at the Liverpool crowd and listen to the crowd that night, and you, you see the the love that that Anfield had for him, and you know, as I said, it's easy to forget just how much of a huge figure he was at Liverpool. You know, the, 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 I mean, obviously people were delighted that he was just health, you know, seemingly, you know, on his way back to health. But I remember looking at him that night and thinking he doesn't look ready to be back in the, the dugout yet, and. I think he probably, I remember listening to him, he, he sort of did regret rushing back so quickly, particularly as Phil Thompson actually did a really good job without him there. You know, Phil Thompson actually got manager manager of the month, which um, I'm sure Phil, you know, likes to tell everybody, <laughs> um, you know, when he, when he does his after-dinner speak, uh, speeches. But uh, that Leverkusen game, I, I remember he obviously removed, uh, he, made, he made some strange tactical uh, decisions. I think he, he took Didi Haman off, if I remember correctly, and and both Vladimir Smeeter on, which was a, a, you know, when Liverpool were protecting the lead, it, it was just a bit of an odd thing to do, really. And I remember speaking to some of the players, and that he said that in the af- in the aftermath, you know, they they were all talking about this. Why did he make these decisions? It just didn't help us at all. And I think from that moment onwards, you know, sort of it, it does unravel for him. Um, but you know, in a, in an alternative universe. I know that he sort of was thinking introspect. You know, he was. I remember it was a particularly warm day in Paris when I went to interview him there, and he was he was sort of drinking mineral water and sort of trying to think longingly about the the mistakes that he'd made in his life. And I think one of them was possibly running rushing back a bit too quickly because 
I think he felt the need to sort of assert his authority again and prove to people that he was the same man that he was before. And, you know, within a couple of months, he was signing LRG Youth, which, um, you know, will uh, manager always remembered by the best and the worst signings that they made. And I think it's fair to say Youth goes down as one of the worst that Liverpool have made in, you know, in, arguably in the club's history. I think the, the pressure can sometimes be just too much, James, can't it? And I think the pressure added to the health issues ultimately um, defeated Gerard Houllier. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I think it was it was errors in judgment, wasn't it? That, that ultimately ultimately cost him. Um, I don't. You, you you speak to the players from that era, and they'll they'll tell you that he was never that they felt that he was never quite the same when when, when he came back after the the absence from from the heart surgery and I think he did probably come back too soon in, in in hindsight you know despite the amazing emotion of that night against Roma when you know they, they did the best to keep quiet the fact that he was going to be back in charge of the team and um but yeah I think it was it, thing, things did start to to unravel and you, know, you you think back to that summer of 2002 and you know Bruno Chiru what was he 4 million quid the earth 10 million Salif Jao, best part of five million. Um, you know, the, the, the decision to go and buy Duf rather than rather than uh, than get Anelka, who of course had been on on loan previously. Um, you know, I think you, Gerard and Carragher have certainly spoken about it previously that they they couldn't understand that because you know they said that Houllier had had almost kind of courted the you know the opinion of senior players and asked them what they thought, and the general consensus was, well, no, you know, Anelka. You know, we we know what he can do. You know, you, you've had a look at him already. He, he would be a better bet than El Haji Juf, but he decided to go in another direction, and that ultimately that ultimately cost Liverpool. I mean, you know, ironically, he actually started that season really well. Um, I think it was nine wins and three draws. They they started things off with, but then there was that you you you, you can almost pinpoint kind of a handful of pivotal moments in Julier's reign, and I think you know, there was the game at Middlesbrough. I think in the in the November that season stands out in terms of kind of it's, it's held up as one of those examples of him being too cautious and and you know especially in the position Liverpool were in at the time you know they they went there played really poorly lost one nil and then I don't think one 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 again in the league till the uh, till the middle of January um, and and then you almost sense then that things he was struggling to to get it back and I think that's when the pressure you know, got too much for him and, and just the list of excuses. I think going back to what you said before, Steve, about the, you know, the siege mentality, I think that's all well and good when, when you're channeling that into something positive and the, 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 you've got that unity and spirit that's driving people on. But, but when you're struggling for results and when you finish, I think 20 odd points behind Manchester United, who won the title in 2003, people, people, you know, they don't want to, this stuff about moaning about former players and what they're saying in the media, and it just—it's just smacks of excuses. And um, you know, and I, and I think it almost became you know, quite kind of energy sapping. I think for for the for the players towards the end. I mean, again, to his final season. Of course, Liverpool end up qualifying for the Champions League, which um, you know, in in the modern era, it almost seems strange that that a manager would lose his job having just qualified for the Champions League. But it was it was definitely time time for him to step aside. And he seemed to want to to fight fires left, right, and centre. So Simon, you'll remember as I do press conferences, you you'd go in and he'd reel out stats. And obviously, this was at the latter end of his tenure. And he might say we had 15 corners in the game, X number of shots on goal. It was almost like he, he came armed with bullets to defend himself. Yeah, well, he was a he was a very combative sort of character, and I think that that sort of nature served him well in the early days. I mean, it, as I said earlier, he, he obviously came from France, but he, he was brought up in a very working class mining town. Managed his first managerial job was was managing. Um, a nearby town's mining club, you know, so he would have been dealing with, like, sort of very strong-minded people, you know, so he, he wasn't, like, you know, sort of the perception of a, you know, like, sort of an Arsene Wenger type. He, he was he was very much on the front foot, even, you know, in the good days. And James just mentioned Anelka there. I think, I think this sort of sums up, you know, sort of who he was and what led him to be the way he was at the end when he was sort of, as you said, 
in press conferences seeming to want to pick fights with anybody who questions his authority. But it was it was it was classic. I've got the quote here. Just just dragged it up now. It's classic sort of Julia um, sort of speak where he, he talks himself up. He says confidently, "We resurrected his career," which I guess you could argue Liverpool did because Anelka was was obviously struggling, you know, for game time when he joined Liverpool. But he said that there was a meeting in March between himself and Rick Parry, uh, along with one of Anelka's brothers and his friends, another so-called representative. And he says that they wanted so much money it would have raised a problem within the changing room in terms of the wages he was earning. So we told them that we couldn't go that far. We managed to reach a compromise, but then I heard that the brother was trying to move Anelka back to Arsenal. At the same time, he was negotiating with Manchester City behind my back. And this, I believe, is an attempt to drive up interest create competition and increase his earnings. I felt that we were not going to win. I realised that if I kept him and he did well, there would be another round of negotiations soon after trying to increase the value of his contract. If he was unhappy, he would try to leave for another club. The process had taken too long and ultimately he did not deserve the energy. You know, so I think that shows you just sort of what sort of character he was. I mean, he made the big call to, to go for an Elker in the first place and made another big call to let him sort of slip away and... That's just the way he was. That was his nature. I mean, he was a, a nice fella, Gerard Julia, as well. You know, it's got to be said. I, I sort of um, enjoyed being in his company when I met him, you know, over a couple of days. Spent, spent, you know, several hours over a couple of days with him. And I did like him. But he had that edge, you know. And I think that edge sort of allowed him to spill over sometimes, as James says, in a sort of in a negative way where it became quite tiresome. He became like he was being defensive and... And on the back foot, rather than being on the front foot, as he was at the beginning of his time at Liverpool. And as is the way with managerial journeys, you can have highs and massive lows, and it's not always perfect. And that was the same with Rafa Benitez that that followed. But for whatever reason, Gerard Houllier isn't held in the same esteem as Rafa Benitez. Is that a fair enough thing to lay down, James? Do, do you think he is... Given the credit he deserved, do you think, for example, the club would have gone on to achieve what it achieved and and be where it is now? No, and I think that I think that is the legacy of Houdier is is the fact that he did he did modernise Liverpool Football Club and put them in a position where Rafa Benitez didn't have to come in and do a lot of the stuff that that, that Liverpool's first foreign manager would have had to have would have would have had to have done if he'd. You know, if Benitez had come in, say before Julier, I think. So I think, yeah, there was a there was an element of like, a, you know, a lot of the a lot of the groundwork, and you know, you think about the the modernising of of Melwood. You know, a lot of the facilities have been have been improved, and so there was there was a lot of good that Gerard Julier did. I think probably the last kind of eighteen months did did kind of wreck things a little bit, and and I think where it's different with Benitez is for for a start, Benitez won the biggest prize. In European club football, so I think he's always going to be regarded on a higher pedestal than than Julier, just just based solely on the fact that he won the biggest thing going. Um, but I think also the fact that although when then things went pear shaped for Benitez, I think there's also you know context around that in terms of the state of Liverpool Football Club at the time with with all the ownership issues and all the rest of it. So I think I think maybe Rafa Benitez. Quite rightly, probably isn't. He's not his. What happened towards the back end of his time at Liverpool doesn't really tarnish what he did achieve in in the earlier years. In the same way as maybe um, who, you know people maybe are, are the opinion is divided on Houdier just because of the of the m- mistakes that got made. Probably you know summer of two thousand and and two onwards. But um, but yeah, I, I think you, what you would have to say is that Gerard Houdier left Liverpool in. In in a, you know in, still in much much better shape than, than than the club that he walked into in the summer of '98. And we'll just give a, a shout out to the piece Simon has written on Michael Owen because of course uh, that does reflect on the conversation we've just had. Simon, just give a, a brief summary. You can find it on the Athletic. Yeah, well, it was um, it was 21 years ago uh, on Sunday when Michael Owen pulled his hamstring, and it was a bit of a crossroads moment in his career as he looked back on it. You know, years later, saying that it, it sort of accelerated the the decline that he sort of suffered several years later because he he actually had one hamstring that was was stronger than the other. And it's quite interesting, really. I mean, uh, Hulier, uh, at the time, you know, they, they chose not to have an operation on his hamstring. It was sort of done by rehabilitation. And 
I got the impression that Michael Owen wished that they'd decided on operation and who they were sort of obviously at the time needed Michael Owen out on the pitch as quickly as possible. And I think because that injury occurred at the end of the season, I think Owen only missed something like uh, 11 games, I think something like that. So it didn't feel like a big a big moment in, in, in the course of any season because it was the end of one season and then he was back at the beginning of the next season. So it wasn't like that conversation about when's Michael Owen going to be back ready, but it was actually a really, you know, big moment in Michael Owen's career and um, and sort of shaped uh, the path that he went on and some of the decisions that he made as well later on in his career, I think. So, yeah, I mean, he, he was he was a really important player for, for, for Gerard Houllier, obviously, you think about the final against Arsenal in 2001, you know, Liverpool got absolutely pounded by Arsenal that day and Michael Owen won Liverpool the final that day. There's no way about, no, no two ways about that. Scored two goals and proved what a world-class player he was. But um, according to Michael Owen, anyway, he, he sort of, and he looks back at it now, but he became European Footballer of the Year that season. But his body was already taking a bit of a battering and, you know, in, in the long term, obviously, it, it didn't help his game. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 21 years. I mean, I, I, I can't believe it. I remember that injury like yesterday and everybody wondering what it would all mean for his career, Liverpool, and, you know, obviously the speculation around England as well. So, yeah, uh, hopefully people will read it and maybe maybe think a little bit differently about that time, I guess, because it wasn't discussed in that level of detail, I think, in, in the period when it actually happened. Absolutely flown by. Check it out. It's on The Athletic uh, now and a whole host of other great articles that uh, James and Simon have written uh, about Liverpool. Jenko scored the winner two years ago. He's up against Dude. Will he hand Liverpool the European Cup? Yes! Yes! European champions! Jersey Dude with a penalty save. Now, Harry sponsors uh, the Red Agenda. Brought to you by The Athletic, Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brands. Well, Harry's trial set includes everything you'll need for a close, comfortable shave. Uh, you get a weighted ergonomic handle, uh, five precision-engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Absolutely fab. Tried it out. Absolutely superb. And as a listener to the Red Agenda, you can start shaving with your Harry's today uh, by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash the Red Agenda. Right now, that's harrys.com forward slash the Red Agenda. Have a closer shave. This is The Red Agenda with uh, Simon Hughes and James Pearce and myself, Steve Hothersall. Let's go to The Red Agenda inbox and answer some of your questions. Um, in fact, before we start all the questions, let's just do um, a quick word on Kenny Dalglish. Obviously, when we heard Sir Kenny um, had gone into hospital, everyone um, well, feared the worst at this moment in time. Thankfully, he's back home. And, uh, and James, he's put a statement out, which a lot of people will have read. And I think we're, we're all comfortable he's in fairly decent health now. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, I think obviously, like everyone, massive, massive concern and, and worry um, when that when that news emerged over over the weekend. Um, of course, you know he was in there recovering from uh, one particular uh, condition when when he got uh, diagnosed with having uh, coronavirus. But thankfully, um, he, he's, he's he was in, still in, able to be in uh, in good spirits and well enough to be discharged from hospital and now he's he's home recuperating so um yeah i think you know when when you get some worrying news like that i think you only had to see the outpouring of of love and admiration for him on on social media to to reinforce what kenny dogleash means to so many people um for for many different reasons you know way beyond what he achieved as a as a manager and as a football player for liverpool um but yeah great great news that he's at home recovering yeah, wish him all the best. Right, let's get a first question from uh, Liam Becker, who says, Simon, any updates on uh, Genie Wijnaldum's contract, if there are any new developments, or when would we expect to hear something? Well, I mean, he's, he's still got another season after after this one. Um, of course, we don't know really when, 
obviously when this season's going to finish, finish and how contracts are going to you know carry on until next season. Um, I suppose one of the more interesting elements will be somebody like Adam Lallana, you know, because Liverpool will probably need him, um, you know, to finish off this season. And I'm pretty pretty sure his, his contract is, is up at, at the end of June, so that they'll have to try and find some sort of solution to that. Um, I mean, I've got to be honest; it's not it's not something that has been on my radar the last couple of days, uh, last couple of weeks. But I, I do know that, that there is there is sort of a willingness on each party's um, part to to try and find a solution because Genie Wijnaldum plays every single week for Liverpool. He's he's still one of the first names on the team sheet. Okay, he's twenty nine, but you know his his fitness levels are so so high. You know, I think in my opinion, he's been one of Liverpool's top three players this season. So Liverpool will be absolutely mad to not ensure that he stays. From the other side, you know, I think he would he would want a longer term contract, slightly bigger wages. Um, but there's a pause on all these discussions at the moment because of we just don't know when footballs are going to start, when there's going to be, um, you know, how how the, the financial landscape is going to be as well. So I think I think all those sorts of discussions and negotiations are sort of being put on ice for the time being. Yeah, so don't worry too much at the moment. On to Fletcher's question. And James, uh, he says, will player values be affected this summer due to coronavirus? Do you think we could see more bargains for top quality players due to the financial impact on European clubs? Of course, I think it was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who was quoted the other day saying that they might be able to get their hands on some players for better prices. Yeah, undoubtedly, yeah. I think I think Solskjaer actually used... Well, I think it was Gary Neville, wasn't it? I think he interviewed him and he... I think he used the word exploit, which probably not. I think I think Neville then subsequently apologised for using that word because it's probably not not a particularly pleasant or apt in the in the current climate with with so many uh, football clubs feeling feeling the effects. But uh, yeah, a hundred percent, there'll be an impact on on fees and I think wages going forward as well because this this has absolutely rocked you know clubs at all levels. Of course, you know I think that the further down you go, the the, the, the harder it's it's hit, but even even for a club the size of Liverpool, you know, in in a piece I wrote last week trying to provide some context to the the furlough decision and the and the subsequent U-turn, you know, Liverpool has got you know yes they they generate huge revenues, but they also have immense overheads and outgoings, and and when there's no money coming in, you know that that is not a good situation to be in. So all all football clubs are. Um, Again, again, I feel the impact of this for for quite a while. So, yeah, we will definitely see uh, the the impact of that whenever the transfer window does does finally uh, reopen again. I think that that's why you know when I speak to people, you speak to agents, you speak to club executives. You know, the idea that there's any transfer business imminent or anything at the moment is absolutely laughable because. There is just so much uncertainty. Nobody knows what kind of shape they're going to be in financially when they come out the other side of this. Yeah, it's obviously affected how clubs are thinking about making transfers happen. Uh, Similar question here from Post-Match End, who says, um, do you think it will change how Liverpool approach the window? Well, you've just answered that, yes. Especially with competitions being moved like Euro 2020 and piling up next year as well. So are they going to have to formulate an idea? Will they... You know, will, will each agent and club have a different perspective on this? Yeah, I think at the moment it's just too soon to to, to say how how they will go about it. Of course, Liverpool have got have had their targets for this summer. You know, you, Timo Werner, we know was was certainly on that list of someone that they were seriously considering. Um, you know, following up their interest in. I think at the moment. There's there's just too much uncertainty to to even think about proceeding with with anything because we we don't know when football's going to return we don't know uh, exactly when that window's going to open we don't know how much of a gap there's going to be in the close season before next season starts so um, you know all all of that just you know football clubs are not going to be writing fifty sixty seven million pound checks out in in this in this current climate I think. Um, People I spoke to at Liverpool last week um, suggested that at the moment, from the discussions that are going on, probably back end of June, early July, we might see games behind closed doors. And 
so you know that that the getting football back of course protects the in- income in terms of tv revenues but it that'll also have a you know a, a big knock on effect if I don't see fans being back in the stadiums for the the rest of this season, at least. Um, so that's going to have an impact in terms of of revenues, and you know it, it could well be well into next season before we see you know, fans filling stadiums again. Quite a bit of correspondence here, Simon, talking about um, the season ticket money and what's what's going to happen with with season tickets. It's obviously a, a conversation that's happening for Liverpool fans at, at present. What, what are you hearing? Well, I mean, the club's going to have some difficult decisions to make, you know, about issues like this. Um, I mean, again, it's not a question that I've asked directly um, over the last couple of weeks, but it is something that the club is trying to formulate plans for. So it ties into everything, really. I mean, there's sort of they're working on different parameters around different possibilities about what may or may not happen. So. There's, I guess they're working on a plan for if football does return in its normality, which seems increasingly unlikely. They're working on a plan for if football returns, with, albeit without spectators. They're working on a plan if football doesn't return at all as well. Um, as James says there, that, you know, that there's, there's, there's going to be a massive financial hit for, well, for, for every, every football club. Um, the only one who potentially benefits from this is is Manchester City, of course, who, you know, that they have the wealth of a, a state behind them. And if they were to relax financial fair play rules over the next um, 18 months, you know, I'd, I'd imagine that would, would help their football club because obviously, you know, John Henry and, and, and Liverpool's owners are essentially, you know, several people who own a football club. They're not a state. It's not saying that they're, you know, poor people. They're obviously very wealthy people. But when you're up against... You know, state-sponsored football clubs. The the challenge is enormous. So, you know, I think anybody who's promoting the idea of of sort of a free reign of spending and and a relaxed financial fair play that would be of a concern for a football club like Liverpool, who obviously found a way over the last um, eighteen months, two years, to to not just beat City but 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 topple them in the league as well. This this would, in in my view, hand them an advantage back um, because Liverpool would have to cut their cloth accordingly and if they have to pay back um, season ticket money that will that will have an impact on, on Liverpool uh, as James says earlier you know, there's, there's a bit of panic and I think going on at Liverpool at the moment uh, which ties into the decision uh, that was made to, to furlough staff a couple of weeks ago the, the, the big the big call really will be I, I think on on player wages and how that works out because they're the biggest outgoing of, of Liverpool Football Club and, and most football clubs in this country. And if Liverpool doesn't have the revenues coming in to pay the players, then that's going to be a problem. You know, is is John Henry going to be in a position or is he going to be allowed to to put his hand in his in his pocket and start paying the players? I, I, I can't see that happening. So there's going to have to be some sort of compromise. This is all, you know, the, the question about season tickets is one element of a much, much bigger picture. And I can understand why any fan who's paid, you know, the full whack and only getting to see, you know, um, a certain number of games, you know, they'd be missing three or four games at home, why they'd want some, you know, they, why they'd want some, some reimbursements. I was going to say on the season ticket one, I, I know, you know, one of the ideas being banded around is that I think clubs obviously desperately trying to think of ways not to have to reimburse fans and this goes across the Premier League that this idea that, that season ticket holders will be given some kind of like you know lo- login which then enables them to to watch to watch the games that um you know via via you know a laptop or via their TV or whatever for nothing but I, I just I just don't see that as being viable because what you know what about those home Liverpool games remaining the, 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 they're going to be televised anyway. You know that that's not providing value for for season ticket holders. Who you know, when you when you've already shelled out the equivalent of probably fifty fifty five pounds to actually be at a game. So um, so yeah, I think that is a that is a concern for the clubs. But I think it, when when you put it in the context of the TV money and you know the best part of eight hundred million pounds, they could potentially have to give back if if the fixtures aren't honoured. You know, uh, of course. That the hit on the match day revenues is is quite small in comparison. Well, we'll, we'll finish on um, quite a big question, but we don't have to go on too long about it. But Nicholas says, if you were if you were betting men, 
when do you think they will allow us as fans back inside stadiums? I'm thinking around October. Now, of course, it is a pie-in-the-sky question, isn't it? But, but Simon, given <laughs> how we're currently going, I mean, you look, you're looking at the back end of the year, are you? Or is it, is it impossible to gauge? It's, I just think it's impossible. Anything, anything is speculation at the moment. That's not me just being evasive. Um, I mean, I, I'm looking at sort of what's been happening in other countries who are sort of ahead of the UK at the moment. So now, obviously, Germany players are back training uh, already with the hope to start football again in, in, in May. Um, I think in China, there was a provisional talk about starting their season, which was meant to start, I think, last month at the end of May. Um, both of those seasons are going to be um, without without football fans. I mean, I think I think people have got to be open-minded to every eventuality. I mean, there's a possibility that, you know, until there's a vaccine for this virus, the, I don't want to sound alarmist, but you have to take that into consideration that until there's a a vaccine for this virus, you know, mass public gatherings, I think are going to be very difficult to justify. So, you know, that could be, you know, next year potentially. Um, I just don't think you can put a date on it yet. I can understand the urgency to get to sort of, to try and find solutions to the, to the football season because I understand, you know, people are saying, oh, well, it's not the time to be talking about getting the season started. But, you know, there is a reality to this that, you know, hopefully, you know, life will return to some degree of normality at some point. So football clubs are like any other business. They have to plan accordingly. And that's why there are conversations going about getting the teams back out on the pitch. As for getting fans back in the stadium, you know, that's an even bigger public health matter, which is going to take a lot of conversation, a lot of, um, you know, dialogue between different parties, both the government level and, and you know, the sporting authorities, uh, I mean, I, I, I think this is just my view, the way things are going. For, to have football crowds back in the stadium this year is, is an optimistic view. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that that won't happen. Um, you know, we're going to have to have a situation, I think, where, where you know, there's, you know, there might be some new regulations for getting people inside the stadiums. How that would work, I don't know. Um, but at this moment in time, it just seems like a very... Uh, very, very far away to, to sort of to think about that, really. It's all guesswork, isn't it? Simon James, uh, thank you very much indeed, guys. Cheers, Steve. Cheers, Stephen. And that's the Red Agenda on The Athletic. And don't forget, you can keep connected uh, with our guys and some of the brilliant articles they write. Uh, sign up for a 90-day free trial. See for yourself. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod for a 90-day free trial. And that was the Red Agenda on The Athletic. We'll have another one for you next week.